House impeachment inquiry into President Trump continues this week. Here are some news developments to keep you up to speed. On Monday, a federal judge fast-tracked Charles Kupperman's request for the courts to decide whether he has to comply with a White House order not to testify or Congress's subpoena in the House impeachment inquiry. Kupperman, as you may remember, is a former deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration. A judge has now ordered final arguments to be held at December 10th. That judge had previously said he intended not to take up the merits of the lawsuit until a later date. The judge's shift sets up a potentially landmark legal battle over the White House's ability to defy Congress's impeachment powers. It's a big case. In a letter released Tuesday, House impeachment investigators are seeking a deposition of acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. The request targets the highest-ranking White House official to date in the impeachment inquiry. Mulvaney, a former Republican congressman, is unlikely to show. And then on Wednesday, David Hale, the State Department's third-ranking official, testified privately before House investigators. Democrats hope Hale can shed more light on the removal of Marie Ivanovich as U.S. ambassador to Ukraine after she became the target of false rumors questioning her loyalty to President Trump. Meanwhile, Wednesday, while Hale was on the Hill, the Democrats announced that public hearings in the inquiry will begin next week with William Taylor, acting ambassador to Ukraine, and George Kent, the deputy assistant secretary of state, both testifying on Wednesday, November 13th. Then former ambassador to Ukraine, Yovanovitch, will testify on Friday, November 15th. And as part of this process of moving this inquiry into the public, Congress this week released some transcripts. On Monday and Tuesday, lawmakers released four transcripts from closed-door testimonies that happened earlier in the inquiry. The transcripts from the testimonies of Yovanovitch, from Michael McKinley, a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, testimony from Gordon Sondland, ambassador to the European Union, and from Kurt Volker, former U.S. special envoy to Ukraine. And still, other secret testimony transcripts are expected as the week continues. In fact, as I'm recording this, the transcript from the closed-door testimony of Bill Taylor, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, has just been released. Each transcript we've seen sheds light on some things we already knew and adds new details to pieces of the story we haven't yet known. But which of these new revelations matter most to the inquiry? And which parts are just as opaque and unknown as before these testimonies were released? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. I talked to The Post's political reporter, Amber Phillips, to find out more. Amber writes a daily newsletter, The Five Minute Fix, with updates on the impeachment inquiry. To start, I asked her why these, these transcripts, transcripts are, being are being released, released right around now. the time House Democrats are pivoting from their impeachment inquiry from these closed door depositions to deciding to hold public hearings. And then right as they're making that pivot, they've been under a lot of criticism from Republicans for having closed door depositions even though that's a pretty normal thing to do in a serious investigation like this. So with all that combined and Democrats wanting to be more open and public about what they're finding out, 
they've decided to release the redacted version of these transcripts. And yet before we saw these transcripts, we had some insight into what was being said in these closed-door hearings. Yeah, we did, in part because of Washington Post reporters and other reporters who were staking out this basement room in the Capitol. There's literally a door that closes and there's a hallway that they can't go down, but they can stand there and watch lawmakers come out. And they've been asking those lawmakers what they've heard. So there have been leaks, essentially, from these depositions where we've gotten a sense of what these people say. Okay. So now, as you said, we've seen four testimony transcripts released this week from those closed-door sessions with House investigators. I want to go through each of them. Let's start with the transcript from Marie Ivanovich. Who is this woman? Who is Ivanovich? She's the former ambassador to Ukraine, and she had every reason to believe she would still to this day be the ambassador of Ukraine. She has a long history of experience in the region, uh, but she was ousted unceremoniously in May by the Trump administration. Is that why she was called to testify, because of the circumstances surrounding her ouster? Yeah, a A lot of people in the diplomatic corps and the Foreign Service felt like her ouster was unfair. It really seemed to mark the beginning of people within the White House close to Trump's efforts in Ukraine to try to politicize Ukraine policy after she was gone. What did we learn from these transcripts about her departure? Did we learn new details about the circumstances? We learned just how much pressure she was under to get out of Ukraine right at the moment she was told to get out, literally the next flight. A month before she was fired, she got a call at 1 a.m. from Washington saying, your security could be of concern. Your safety is of concern. We need you on the next flight out. Do we know what that meant? We don't know. And according to this transcript, she still doesn't know. I'm going to read a direct quote from it. She said there was a lot of concern for me that I needed to be on the next plane home to Washington, talking about the woman who called her from Washington. And I was like, what? What happened? And she said, I don't know, but this is about your security. You need to come home immediately. You need to come home on the next plane. She has no clarification of what that means. And I imagine that's something House investigators will want to find out. And presumably that's something that she'll be asked about during her public testimony. But to this point, is her security still at risk as far as we know? She testified, this is another thing we learned from the transcripts, that she felt threatened by President Trump when the transcript of that phone call with Ukraine's president in July was released. She learned about it like the rest of the world. She'd been out of her post for a couple months at this point, and yet the president uh, mentioned her to Ukraine's president, calling her bad news and saying, quote, she's going to go through some things. And she testified she was concerned when she heard that. She still is to this day, many months later, and that she felt threatened. To get a little deeper into the details of her departure, what was the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani's role in her leaving? How did his dealings in Ukraine affect her work? So throughout this time, Giuliani was running a shadow foreign policy effort for President Trump. um, And we're still trying to understand the full extent of what he was doing and why. But we do know these officials felt like he was undermining them. These experienced career diplomats were trying to sit down with Ukrainian officials and talk about anti-corruption and the civil war in Ukraine backed by Russian separatists. Uh, And then These Ukrainian officials were essentially saying, yeah, but President Trump's personal lawyer wants this or, you know, we want to talk to President Trump's personal lawyer, not you. And, And these people, including Ivanovich, were totally flummoxed by that. Giuliani helped former Ukrainian officials who had been essentially ousted in Ukraine over corruption allegations, mm-hmm. push these unsubstantiated theories that Ivanovich was actually the one 
being corrupt in Ukraine. There's a variety of things they allege she was doing, that she had like a no-prosecute list for all these officials in America she wanted to protect. It's all unsubstantiated. Yovanovitch testified under oath. None of this is true. Um, And what she said, she felt like what was happening is Giuliani was actually helping these former Ukrainian officials get Yovanovitch out and that these former Ukrainian officials wanted her out because they felt threatened by her. She was the one actually trying to help Ukraine clean up a lot of its corruption. Can you just connect the dots for me here? Is it important to the heart of the impeachment inquiry whether or not Yovanovitch was ousted fairly? Did her departure end up having some sort of secondary consequences? What's important in the sense that Trump made it important by mentioning her on that phone call with Ukraine's president. Again, this was months after she was gone, and he said she's bad news. She's going to go through some things. So in a sense, when you have two world leaders talking about foreign policy and they only have a couple minutes together, and he's bringing up Yovanovitch and how the president thought she was corrupt and a bad person and bad for U.S.-Ukrainian policy, it becomes a big deal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we still don't exactly know what else was being pushed by the president or his allies related to her. Even months after she was ousted, though, he was on his mind. And I I do think there were secondary consequences in in her ouster in that uh, it encouraged a lot of other diplomats to speak up Mm -hmm. and come talk to the House impeachment inquiry because her ouster was really the first time that a lot of these officials said they felt things were really, really wrong. Like, this is completely unfair. My red line has been crossed. She doesn't deserve to be gone and she doesn't deserve to be smeared this way. Yes, I will talk to you, House investigators. So one of those people is actually Michael McKinley, who's one of the other testimonies we saw, this, this transcripts that we saw this week from his testimony. He was a top aide to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at the State Department until he recently resigned. So why did he resign? And I think you just touched on this, but what were McKinley's reasons? Yeah, he said he resigned because he felt the State Department under Pompeo wasn't supporting people like Yovanovitch. He tried to get a bunch of people to sign on after Trump called her a bad person, you know, in that in that phone call that got released. He tried to get a bunch of senior officials to sign on as a statement of support for her. He said Pompeo put the brakes on it, and he said, you know what, I, I just think that this administration isn't protecting State Department officials at a really crucial moment for them when they were being politicized by the president. And to add some context, McKinley himself has been a State Department. He's worked in the Foreign Service in some capacity and for about 40 years or almost 40 years. Did he feel that his concerns were representative of, of many other career diplomats? He did. You know, one thing he wanted to stress to investigators was that diplomats aren't political. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't know the political beliefs of a bunch of people I've worked with abroad in America. And I think that's the way the American diplomatic corps should exist, because otherwise it risks undermining the administration. Like, paradoxically, it helps Trump if we're not political. Right. And so that was something he felt like he was standing up for in this impeachment investigation was trying to stop the politicization of of State Department officials. Okay, so that captures the two transcripts we saw on Monday from McKinley and and Yovanovitch. On Tuesday, we got a second set of closed-door testimony transcripts. Kurt Volker's testimony, he's the former special envoy for Ukraine, and then the testimony of Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU. Let's talk about Volker first. At this point in my mind, Kurt Volker is just the text message guy, right? He's the person who submitted text messages to House impeachment investigators showing efforts to arrange the July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky. 
Can you just sort of give context to this? Why does Volcker matter? He matters the impeachment inquiry in that he was really the first person behind the veil of Trump's administration to come forward. He resigned his job as the special envoy to Ukraine basically on the eve of his questioning Mm -hmm. uh, on a Friday, and then he went in on a Monday or Tuesday. And then he wasn't just an ancillary figure to Trump's efforts in Ukraine, whatever those may be. He was a part of a group of three entrusted by the president uh, to carry out his the Ukraine policies. The three amigos, <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, his official title was special envoy to Ukraine. So he says this in his testimony. He was at the center of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and some of what he learned, he says, caught him off guard. Mm-hmm. And we learned of what he learned from text messages that he had released. What did we know before we even saw this testimony, before we saw this transcript? What, we, what did we know from those text messages? Yeah, that Volcker and other Trump officials thought Trump wanted Ukraine to publicly say it was investigating Democrats so that the newly elected president could get a meeting with Trump. Mm-hmm. They don't explicitly say quid pro quo, but they, they essentially are trading texts and being like, listen, this is what the president wants. Um, so if Zelensky wants to meet with Trump, we need him to get him to say this. Mm-hmm. And and that's written pretty clearly in those text messages. It's Yeah, it's very clear. And legal experts I've talked to and other people at the Post have talked to said it's about as explicit as it gets for quid pro quo. So did the release of Volcker's testimony transcript shed any new light on those text messages? It did. We learned that Volcker told uh, Trump's personal lawyer, Giuliani, who was pushing a lot of this as well, that all these investigations were debunked. Mm-hmm. Like at, at one point, Volcker, before he knew the president himself wanted all this stuff, told Ukrainians, just ignore this stuff. Let's work on more substantive policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he used that word like substantive. Like he thought all this stuff was a total distraction to U.S.-Ukraine policy. Let's move on to Sondland. Remind me again, we've covered Sondland on this show many times before, but just remind me why he's considered such a critical witness in this impeachment inquiry. He's the person most involved in carrying out Trump's wishes in Ukraine. And there's a political aspect to this. He is major Trump donor and got a big cushy job as the head of the European Union diplomatic force in, for America. And so he's someone who seems caught up in all of this and a little bit over his head mm-hmm. uh, and, and was someone who appeared to be carrying out Trump's policy in the way he frames it, didn't fully understand the implications of it. And then we learn he he goes to Congress and he says, this was an insidious. Like, he, he essentially realized later he thought this was wrong. But in the moment when all this was happening this summer, Sondland, above all else, alongside maybe Giuliani, is the one pushing what the president wants, these quid pro quos. And Sondland has also since revised his testimony. He initially gave testimony to Congress. And since then, we now learn that he had come back on a few things. What what was revised? What did he change? So Sondland went back to Congress and said, you know what? In hindsight, I should have known there was a quid pro quo. I, I realize now that the president, in order to release military aid, wanted Ukraine's president to agree to a couple investigations related to Democrats. And that is kind of huge, right? It's it's Gordon Sondland at the center of this, admitting that he did, in fact, see or should have known about an existing quid pro quo. Right. Again, this is one of Trump's biggest allies in all of this, saying, you know what? There, <laughs> it sounds like there were some pretty strict conditions on this bipartisan aid 
Um, in addition to that, he said some aspects of that he thought was troubling and maybe even illegal. So did this just come to him? Why did he suddenly decide to change his testimony? Uh, I don't think uh, listeners can see me. I'm shrugging right now. <laughs> uh, we don't know. He, he, no, he, he says that his memory was jogged. Mm-hmm. By others who had testified or other things that had come out? Yeah, exactly. By others who have testified. I think it's safe to assume that a bunch of other people came to Congress and said, Gordon Sondland was in these meetings. He was telling Ukrainian officials, you're not going to get your military aid unless you agree to these investigations. And these, he would come out of those meetings and relay this to national security officials whose minds were just blown at how wrong they thought that was. And there's a couple different instances of testimony that implicated Sondland as the guy communicating the quid pro quos. So it, I think it's fair to say Sondland felt like he had to clarify um, rather than risk being charged of perjury by going before Congress and saying, I don't remember any of this, which is what he originally testified. Right. But Sondland has been clear that he never necessarily received a directive from President Trump to carry out these wishes. That's right. Yep. Sondland does not directly implicate Trump in this. In the text messages that Volcker released to Congress and we got to see, Sondland is very careful to say the president does not want a quid pro quo. So looking at this week so far and what we've learned and knowing that there's still some transcripts to come that we might see this week, is there a shared theme that's emerging in these testimonies? I would say yes. People from career diplomats to Trump's close allies were concerned that he and his personal lawyer were trying to politicize Ukraine policy Mm -hmm. in a way they felt was troubling for U.S. interests and maybe even illegal. Okay, so we know more in that sense than we did last week. But what don't we know? What don't these transcripts tell us? Who's driving all this? Right. Like, was it Giuliani just acting of his own volition? Was it President Trump? Um, How on earth and why were these debunked and unsubstantiated theories about Democrats doing bad stuff in Ukraine even brought to the president's ear in the first place. Uh, we we just we don't know, like, the impetus for all of this yet. Mm-hmm. And did we learn more about how Republicans and Democrats are, are approaching this? Yeah, I was most interested to see whether Republicans took this seriously. And what I saw is that they're pretty consistent behind closed doors with what we hear publicly in front of the microphones. Republicans see themselves as Trump's defenders in all this and are trying to undermine uh, some of this testimony. And that unity from House Republicans could be what saves Trump to the extent that if the House decides to impeach Trump and none or hardly any Republicans vote for it, Trump can say this was a partisan exercise by Democrats and, and undermine the whole thing to the extent that that he can make that case to the American people credibly. How has the president, the subject of this impeachment inquiry, been reacting publicly to all of these testimonies and what the trickling of information we've learned as it's come out? He has been completely defiant that he did anything wrong. Uh, anybody who testifies against him is labeled as a never-Trumper, despite evidence to the contrary in some of these cases. And he's pushing uh, and a defense, which is read the transcript of the phone call because I did nothing wrong. When you talk to legal experts um, and when you talk to NSC officials who were on the phone call at the time, Mm -hmm. they thought it was wrong enough to go to government lawyers and document their concerns. Uh, That eventually led to this whistleblower complaint that led to this impeachment inquiry. So the call is like this central piece of evidence for wrongdoing. And then he's saying, I did nothing wrong. Read the transcript. 
All right. Well, we will soon see how the president reacts to public hearings. Those begin next week with Taylor and Kent on Wednesday and Yovanovitch on Friday. Thank you so much for joining us, Amber. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can You Do That? If you want to subscribe to Amber's newsletter five days a week on the impeachment inquiry, you should sign up at wapo.st slash five min fix. That's wapo.st slash the number five M-I-N-F-I-X. And if that newsletter and this podcast isn't enough impeachment news for you, you can get even more news about the impeachment inquiry by subscribing to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That? Post Reports and The Daily 202's Big Idea, updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the... Savvy Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 